Please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we'll be reading the entire psalm this morning. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm sure that most of you are as tired as I am of thinking about and talking about this most recent presidential election. But I do think that this is a strategic, important time for our society. Because our society is confused and doing a whole lot of soul searching. I think we as an American society are struggling with our identity. Who are we? What are we about? Where are we trying to go? And without a common worldview, without a common set of values, these are things that our society used to have, but as that has broken down, as that has dissipated over recent generations, we just aren't sure who we are anymore and what we're all about. And we are, as this election has shown us more clearly than anything I remember in my lifetime, we are deeply divided as a people. Liberal versus conservative, black versus white, men versus women, rich versus poor, urban versus rural, millennial versus baby boomer. We are divided in so very many ways. After all the riots this past week in response to the election, I've heard a cliche phrase that I've heard many times in my life. The call has been to peace and unity. And the statement is, what unites us is greater than what divides us. But is that really true? I'm not so sure anymore. And the plain truth of the situation is, is that we cannot work together towards peace and unity without understanding the big picture, without understanding what is the root conflict 
that is behind all of the other conflicts that we read about and experience in our society today. I do believe that this is a time for the voice of the true church to be heard. And by the voice of the true church, I mean the voice of God through the scriptures. And this is a time for the true church to show this divided world what the kingdom of God really does look like. It's an incredible opportunity for us in a time of confusion and division. Psalm 2 is one of those incredible passages of scripture that gives us that big picture. Psalm 2 is a vivid description of that root conflict that is at the root of every other daily conflict that we see in this world. Psalm 2 is kind of like the revelation of the Old Testament. You know that revelation is kind of added into the New Testament to show us what the big picture is of the world and of the conflicts in the world in light of the first coming of Christ. Well, Psalm 2 is in very much the same way. It's a picture of that conflict that's been going on for a very long time. A conflict that started in the Garden of Eden when the first man and the first woman rebelled against their creator. It's the conflict that's been going on through history where the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have constantly been at war. It's the same conflict that's been going on between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And what scripture tells us is that the focal point of that conflict is a person, a divine person, Jesus Christ. As Jesus announced to the world when he came that first time, Whoever's not with me is against me. That's a profound truth to plug into your worldview. Whoever is not with Christ is against Christ. And so when you think about all the conflicts going on in the world, all the divisions, all the disagreements, the root of it all is that those who aren't with Christ are against him. The main point I want to get to today by looking at Psalm 2 is that the church desperately in this crucial moment needs to be reminded that what unites us is far greater than what divides us. We also need to be reminded that because of our loyalty to King Jesus, we are going to have enemies in this world. There is a root conflict behind all the conflicts And we will get caught up in it because as we identify with Christ, we will also draw the opposition of his enemies. But we also need to be reminded that the way that we conquer in this ultimate conflict is not by force, but by loving our enemies, as Jesus taught us, and spreading the truth of his gospel. That's what the church is to be about. So I want us to take a few moments this morning to go to Psalm 2 to get that perspective corrective that we need as we look at the church and as we particularly look at the church in the context of a hostile world. The heavenly view of this conflict on earth. This psalm is divided up very neatly into four sections and so we can look at each section individually. The first section is verses 1 to 3. And what's described there is the rage of the nations. 
The psalm starts with an expression of astonishment. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The word rage in the original Hebrew language in which this was written meant to assemble together in anger and violence. That's what the word means, to assemble together in anger and violence. In other words, it's a description of an angry mob. It's a description of a riot. The kings, the rulers that are driving this angry mob are those powers that be. Surely political leaders, which are in view here immediately, but any powers that be in society, those who lead our institutions, educational leaders, media leaders, corporate leaders, the powers that be, consort together in an angry mob, he's saying. And what cause has brought all of these leaders, with their incredible differences among themselves, what has brought them all together in anger to form this mob? It says they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. I'm always amazed at how you can take people that have very obvious differences but bring them together for a common cause if they are opposing the same enemy. Saw this just a couple weeks ago at Beaver Stadium. Those of us, 107,000 of us who were in that stadium, were all wearing the same color. We're all wearing the same logo on our sweatshirts and t-shirts. We're all chanting the same chants. We're all singing the same songs. We're all shouting, we are Penn State. We were so unified against that common evil empire of of Ohio State. (laughs) We were one. We were unified. And yet, only two weeks later, we all went to the polls to vote. And we were deeply, deeply divided. We need to keep in mind that the enemies of the throne of God aren't going to look like enemies on the surface. Matter of fact, they're going to come at you with flowery rhetoric. And they're going to be talking about noble principles like justice and love and peace and unity. And they themselves are not going to be conscious of the fact that they are opposing the throne of God. They're not, they've deceived themselves before they've deceived you. But what scripture shows us, again, this is God's perspective on the angry masses. From God's perspective, in their heart, they are rebels to his throne. They are enemies of his kingdom. So who's this Lord's anointed that's referred to? They are opposed not just against God, but at his anointed one. Well, as we know from the Old Testament, the only people that were anointed by God were prophets, priests, and kings. Because they were chosen by God to lead God's people. And the anointing meant that he had placed his spirit upon them to set them apart, to call them to serve, to lead on behalf of him in his name. So they were delegated authority from God to serve in submission to his authority. They were authorized, they were empowered by God. And here in verse 6, a little bit later, skipping down to the second session, verse 6, he makes it clear that this anointed one is the king that he has set on the throne on earth. The one he has set on his holy hill on Zion, representing Jerusalem, ruling over 
the visible people of God under the old covenant, Israel. So who is the king that's referring to? He's referring to himself, obviously, in one sense. And who is this king? Well, we don't have a title on Psalm 2 like we do on some of the other psalms that tell us who wrote it. But we do have a very clear reference in the New Testament to who wrote Psalm 2. This is found over in the book of Acts. And the context of this reference to Psalm 2 in the book of Acts is really important because what's happened is that that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has called together his apostles to be the leaders of the early church. He has anointed them to be his leaders in his name of his church. And as they have gone out to preach the gospel, they have incurred the opposition and the hostility of the authorities of the powers that be. And so by the time you get to chapter 4, again, Peter and John are thrown into prison. They are beaten. They are warned not to preach this gospel any longer. And then they're released. And after they're released, they go back to the church, the small beginnings of the church of Christ. And they go back, and the people rejoice that they've been delivered by God's grace. And then they pray. But listen to the prayer. This is the prayer that they pray in Acts 4. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Two very important things you get from their prayer. First of all, David wrote Psalm 2. So we know who wrote it. We know whose perspective is, is reflected there. Secondly, the early church applied what Dave was, David was talking about to their own situation. That they, as Christ's representatives on earth, had incurred the hostility of the powers that be against them because of it's a fulfillment of what Psalm 2 is talking about. That the nations, the peoples, the powers that be are gathered together. They're raging against God and his anointed one. David, when he wrote this, was writing this about himself because God had appointed him not only to be the king in his own day, but had given him the very special promise, the prophetic vision that his, one of his sons, one of his descendants, would be on the throne of God's kingdom, not only over Israel, but over the entire world, over the entire universe, and that would be for eternity. That's the promise that David had been given. One of his sons, one of his greater sons, would be this anointed one, this king that Psalm 2 is talking about. So it's clear as you read Psalm 2, David is thinking of himself in a very limited way, but he's thinking far beyond that to this promised greater son to come. And what's, what I, I left off in the middle of the prayer of the early church, let me pick it up after they quote Psalm 2. They say, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the prayer goes on to say this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Jesus the anointed one, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch forth your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see what they're doing with Psalm 2? They're saying, Jesus, the risen one, is the one that is promised to David. 
He's the greater son of David. He's the one who has been given the throne over God's people, over the world, over all the nations of the world, and over the universe, and he will be king forever. He is the Messiah. That's what anointed one means in Hebrew. Anointed one, the Hebrew word for that is the word we get Messiah from. It's the word that's translated in the Greek of the New Testament to Christ, Jesus the Christ. The church understood that Christ had ascended to that throne. He is the greater son. And not only would he incur the wrath of the nations, the power to be of this fallen world, but the church, as they identified with this risen king, would also incur the wrath of the world. And that's what they were experiencing in their persecution. So why is the world rebelling against God's anointed king? Why? It's verbalized in verse 3. This is what they're saying. This is what's going on in the hearts, whether they acknowledge it or not. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us burst the bonds of God and his anointed one and let us cast away their cords. You see how they view the authority of the Lord and his king, of God the Father and his king, his son. You see how they view it. They see it as shackles, chains, handcuffs. And isn't that how those who are not born again look at the authority of God and of Christ? They see God's authority as a restraint. So what you see is this angry mob. It's really a freedom movement, isn't it? It's all about freedom. Be very, very cautious about freedom movements. Because they want freedom from the authority of their creator. And they want freedom from the authority of his appointed king. And by God's grace, we have understood a better way. To the unbeliever, it's always better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. But we know by God's grace, as forgiven rebels ourselves... That true freedom is found in submission to this king. In abiding by his law. By walking in his ways. You know, Satan is a cruel king. When you join his freedom movement, you actually become his servants. And you actually become slaves to sin. And that's real bondage. Bondage that goes to the very core of who you are. But you remember what Jesus said as our king. He said in Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30, Take my yoke upon you. And yes, he, he puts a yoke upon you. He puts you under his law and under his authority. That is absolutely true. But he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We know this from experience, don't we? That to walk in the ways of the Lord to keep his law is freedom. It's real freedom. It's spiritual freedom. It brings peace and joy to the soul. Well, the second section, we see God's response to the rebellion of the angry mobs. Look at verses 4 to 6. There are riots and rebellion and chaos on earth, but notice the peace and the calm in heaven in response. One commentator said that all of the Angry response of the mob below on earth looks like jumping grasshoppers to the, to the Lord. Notice the stark contrast 
between the chaos of the mob and this calm response from God sitting in heaven on his throne. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. A derisive laugh. There was a Broadway musical many years ago. I never actually saw it myself, but I always liked the title. It says, your arms are too short to box with God. You remember when rebellious mankind decided to build the Tower of Babel to try to ascend to heaven and make a name for themselves? Do you remember what it says in the text? It says that God had to come down to look at it. And you get this idea of us getting down on our hands and knees with a magnifying glass to look at a little hill that ants are building. You know, that's, that's kind of the image you get. He had to go down and, and pull out his, his magnifying glass to look at see that this great effort that mankind had taken upon themselves to rebel against his authority. And you can see why he laughs. But it's not a playful laugh. It's not a fun-loving laugh. You see immediately here in Psalm 2 that it's an angry laugh. It's an expression of his righteous anger against sin and rebellion. He is a holy God, a holy, holy, holy God who is fully just and must punish sin. And he is angered by sin far more than you and I are angered by the most atrocious sins that we know in our lives because of his holiness. When the Philistines or the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Syrians rebelled against the throne of David in Jerusalem, God laughed at their rebellion. Martin Luther made a statement that I actually kind of winced when I first read this and wasn't sure if I was really comfortable with it, but I think he's right. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, could, who could have imagined that God laughed as Christ was suffering and the Jewish leaders were exalting? So, too, when we are oppressed, how often do we still believe that those who oppose us are being derided by God? There was a sense in which, even as we think of God grieving over the rejection and suffering and horrific death of his son, he was derisively laughing at the attempts of fallen mankind to thwart his purpose to destroy his kingdom. In God's wrath and anger, he makes a statement in verse 6, I have set my king on Zion. That's God's response to the rebellious mob preaching freedom to fallen sinners. This is his response. He laughs at their pride and presumption And then he points to his son. My son, my king, is on the throne. He doesn't point directly to the laws that they have broken, which they have broken many, but he points to the lawgiver, the law enforcer, the king on the throne. I think that's one of the big mistakes that Christian political movements have made in my lifetime. When you think back to the moral majority or the Christian right, Too often we made it about the law. We rightly pointed out that our society, our powers that be, were breaking the law. They were immoral. That They weren't running the country the way God says it should be run. They weren't protecting the unborn the way that they should be protected. They weren't 
designing marriage the way that God had said it should be designed. We, we would point to the law, but we forgot to point to the king. And so the fallout of that is that these movements are remembered as legalistic and judgmental movements as opposed to being Christ-centered movements. Because yes, we need to point out how our society is breaking God's law with tears in our eyes, not pride in our hearts, but tears in our eyes we need to point out about how our country is breaking God's perfect will. But we must ultimately point to Christ because it's only in him that any rebel can find hope of grace and redemption. It's not about imposing our morality on other people. It's about pointing to the one who can free people from the penalty and the power of sin. That's what it's about. The third section, that's where we see the Messiah's, the anointed one's claim. That's verses 7 through 9. And what you have here is basically a restatement of the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God established with David, that not only would he place him on the throne over the visible representation of the kingdom of God on earth, which was Israel, but that one day one of his sons would come to take that throne and make it not only the throne over Israel, but the throne over all nations, and to rule over eventually a perfect kingdom for all eternity. Let me take you back to that original promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Hear it from the very mouth of God. Here it says in 2 Samuel 7 beginning in verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. There's that language. That's coronation language for the throne over God's kingdom. That when the king ascends to the throne, this is what God declares. This king will be my son, and I will be his father. That's why Psalm 2 alludes to it. When Solomon was to take the throne, that's what God says. I will... Make him to be my son and I will be his father. That's why it was so important that when Christ came as the ultimate fulfillment of all of the Davidic promises, that's why it was so important that the voice from heaven said twice to him, once at the beginning of his ministry and once near the end of his ministry, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It was a coronation statement that he was about to take this throne, that he was about to be the great son of David who would bring to fulfillment all of God's promises. When did Christ take his throne? Well, the New Testament tells us that it's when he was raised from the dead. Paul makes this clear. Paul quotes Psalm 2 in one of his sermons when he preaches the gospel in Acts 13. Listen to how he quotes Psalm 2 and says it was fulfilled when Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God. Listen to it. This is Acts 13 beginning in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4, 
Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's not talking about the beginning of Christ's existence, which there is none because he was eternal. It's talking about that moment when he ascended to the throne to take his reign as the greater son of David. When he was raised from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and from there he reigns and rules over all things as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Psalm 2 is portraying. And in verses 8 and 9, it says that Jesus, at that point, having ascended to the throne, he lays claim to all the nations of the world, that nations and the ends of the earth belong to him. You know, Satan tempted him by offering him the ability to have a temporal rule over the nations without going to the cross, and Jesus rejected that temptation. He trusted in the Father's will, and he fulfilled the promise that the Father had given. And it was only by conquering our ultimate enemies of death, Satan, and the power of sin at the cross and being raised from the dead that empowered him to take his rights to the throne to reign forever. And so now this is the missionary mandate of the church. Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are his servants and we are sent forth as representatives of the king. We are ambassadors to this fallen world to take this message of truth so that rebels to the throne can know how they can come into a right relationship with God and be a part of this kingdom of God. But notice that verse 9 contains an essential part of that gospel message. It talks about the wrath of God. And God's wrath against his enemies cannot be ignored. All those among the nations, whether they be powers that be or not, all those among the nations who continue to rebel against God's king, Jesus, will one day be crushed if they will not repent. Crushed, as it says here, as easily as an iron rod crushes fragile pottery. There is coming a day when Christ will come not in weakness but in power. It's described for us in glorious terms at the very end of Scripture. Revelation 19 Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That day is coming. Those who continue to rebel against the throne will bear his wrath. But he delays. He delays. And that brings us to the last section of the psalm. Don't miss it. Here's where the mercy. You have the wrath of God, but here's where the mercy of God comes in in verses 10 through 12. Here's the invitation that Messiah's servants have been given to take to the world. Be wise. 
Be warned. There is still time to switch your allegiance. There's still time. If you're breathing, there's still opportunity to switch sides in this ultimate conflict on earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You know, it's interesting to me that once God established his throne in Jerusalem in the Old Testament and David took the throne as the rightful king, he never fought an offensive war. Did you ever notice that? All the wars that David fought, and he fought many of them, were defensive when he was attacked by the enemies of the throne. What that tells me is that even in the Old Testament, even in the shadows of the Old Testament, it was never God's intention to bring his kingdom to earth by force. It was always his intention to sit Israel and Jerusalem on it as a light on a hill to be a witness to the nations about the mercy available through the covenant promises of God. And there was always the invitation to come and serve the true God under the authority of his king. And that still remains to be true. Christ has come. He has won the ultimate victories that ensure our eternal life, our forgiveness, our redemption, our salvation. And he has come and he has established a kingdom. His kingdom is very real. It's here. It's among us. But this is how he described it when he stood before that lowly king Pilate, that lowly world ruler. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The kingdom advances, the kingdom conquers in this age until he returns to bring final victory. It advances by the proclamation of the truth. It advances by his people giving the invitation, as it says here in Psalm 2, to kiss the sun. You've seen those old pictures of ancient kingdoms where loyal subjects would come and kiss the hand or the signet ring of the king or they'd kiss the feet or the hem of the robe. It was an act of absolute submission, absolute commitment, absolute loyalty to the king. That's why the kiss of Judas on the cheek of Christ was so, so offensive. Because that's the offer of the gospel. Kiss the son. Trust in him. Submit to his rule. Love him. Serve him. And you will be really free. His wrath is quickly kindled, Psalm 2 says. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's still time. There's still time. We who are rebels can flee to him and take refuge in him. Refuge from what? Refuge from his coming wrath. Please hear this, church of Jesus Christ. What unites us is far greater than what divides us. What unites us is far greater than what divides us because of Christ. The people who hate Christ in this world... We'll hate us. He promised us that. That if we identify with him and they hate him, whether they are conscious of that hatred or not, 
They will hate us as we represent him. But we are called to love our enemies. That's how his kingdom will advance in this age, is by loving his enemies. The kingdom doesn't advance by force. It's amazing to me how our culture seems afraid of the church. Our calling is to love our enemies, to do what's best for them, and to tell them the truth as God has revealed it in his word. That's our mission, to invite them to kiss the sun. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Unfortunately, we quit the verse there. <laughs> we we're praying for our kings and those in authority over us, all the powers that be. We're praying for them so that we can lead a quiet and peaceful life. But the verse doesn't stop there. Because the purpose of the peaceful and quiet life is so that we can perform our mission. That's how the verse goes on. It says we are to live that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Peace and quiet in this world, don't count on it. But if you have it, it's only to give you greater freedom to tell the truth and to love your enemies and point them to the one true king. As our society continues to fracture, and I'm no prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I do believe that our culture is going to continue to fracture. We think it's divided now. I've been watching it all my life. It's not getting any better. Barring a divine intervention, barring a revival of the church of Christ and a transformation and reformation of our entire society, this society is going to continue to fracture. It's going to break into thousands of special interest groups seeking their own good at the cost of others. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the church of Jesus Christ is the only hope for this society. What we have here, by God's grace, as his gift to us, is what this culture, this society needs. Think about it a minute. The church is made up of liberal and conservative sinners saved by grace. The church is made up of black and white sinners saved by grace. The church is made up of Hispanic and Asian sinners saved by grace. The church is made up of rich and poor sinners saved by grace. The church is made up of urban and rural sinners saved by grace. The church is made up of millennial Sinner saved by grace. And baby boomer sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. I wouldn't be at all surprised if I were to take both first and second services of Oakwood Presbyterian Church I would, and I were to poll you on how you voted last Tuesday, we would have had every name on the ballot has had one of us vote for. But what unites us is so far greater than what divides us. Many of us have forgotten that over recent weeks and months. We've been so focused in on our worldly differences and we've lost sight of the bigger picture and that's why I wanted to share Psalm 2 with you because that's what Psalm 2 is. It's the bigger picture. It's the root conflict that produces all the other conflicts in life and the only answer is found in kissing the sun.
taking refuge in Jesus Christ and doing it for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to see it. We don't say this in pride. We were just as much rebels against your throne as anyone else. And if you had left us to ourselves, we would still be in that state of darkness and on the path to eternal destruction. But by your grace, you've opened our eyes. You've taken out our stone hearts and replaced them with hearts that seek you, that want to know you, that love you, and strive to do your will. We didn't deserve any of this, Lord. Thank you for your grace. And may others in our lives that we love and care for and interact with every day come to know this grace as well. We pray that your spirit would come upon our families, come upon our neighborhoods, come upon our community, come upon our land, our nation. Bring about that revival that we might all truly unite under King Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.